be advised, Blue Rose Task Force is filled with secrets and spoilers. Welcome to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, where we look deeply into Twin Peaks as a whole, one episode at a time, using the full scope of the show Twin Peaks and all its official media. We don't use the word canon, but we consider all official releases important because Lynch and Frost have approved their presence. And we welcome all input into the collective consciousness that is the Twin Peaks community and wider universe. This podcast is a watch-along podcast for those who've seen all of Twin Peaks, including the third season, which we do consider as we go along. Today, we're looking at the 16th overall episode of Twin Peaks, episode 15, often known, depending where you look, as season 2, episode 8, episode 16, or what the German regionalization team named Drive with a Dead Girl. I'm your host, John. Episode 15 begins with an outside view of Maddie's murder, then shows how Leland turned the living room into a putting range by the next morning, which Donna and James think is wacky fun. Lucy's sister Gwen arrives to the pleasure of no one. Ben's lawyer Jerry gets him even more incarcerated. Norma's mom Vivian comes to town with a shady new husband Ernie, who spent time in prison with Hank, and Pete brings a message from Catherine to Ben. Gerard escapes, is reacquired, and sniffs out the lack of Bob in Ben. And this whole episode, Leland and his co-pilot Bob are running wild golfing, faking concern, singing and dancing, and disposing of Maddie's body, which is discovered by episode's end. As a path is formed by laying one stone at a time, what kind of questions are we left with? looking at Twin Peaks as a whole. How is the supernatural inverted now that Bob has killed again? How is Twin Peaks managing its own secrets here? And what is the relationship that we see here between Bob and Leland? And of course, before we dig into that, we're going to look at the production history and anything we can find from behind the scenes of how it was made at the time, to anchor it in that context first. So this episode was written by Scott Frost and directed by Caleb Deschanel. Now, Deschanel directed in season one, but um, there were a few new hurdles this time around. And um, according to uh, Deschanel and Reflections, the, uh, the book by Brad Dukes, um, he said, they made a big effort not to reveal that it was Ray Wise. We had three different scripts with each one revealing a different person as the killer. This was before the days of the internet, but even so, there was enough interest in the show and enough subterfuge of people wanting to know what was going on that they were afraid it would get out. So we went out and shot these other scenes as well. So 
What really intrigues me about that is I've seen a script where Big Ed was the one driving the car. So that means that Everett McGill had a really interesting afternoon driving around like a madman. Um, so like I, I can only imagine what else they had to cover <laughs> those couple of days. Probably one of the more enduring scenes um, is that hook rug dance. Uh, well, that's the name of the track that Badalamente made at the time. But um, um, there's that um, that old babysitter and the flashback of the the Horn Brothers. And um, Deschanel said the Luis Dombrowski words fell flat just speaking about it. So that was a written scene that um, didn't really capture anything visually when um when ben and jerry are in their um in the cell talking about it so um de chanel pitched to mark and david and they thought the flashback was a great idea in essential wrapped in plastic uh we've got richard bamer suggesting the scene where the horn boys had flashlights and they were shining on parts of the girls uh, on parts of the girl to be voyeuristic on purpose and um I mean, sure, it matched how the Horn Brothers are, but um, it ended up losing an innocence to it. And, um, you know, th this way the girl had the light and the boys didn't. And um, I, I kind of like that. And um, I definitely side with the director on that one. Another fun detail I found in, in Reflections was um, that um, uh, Deschanel's daughter... Emily Deschanel, who'd, you know, be the future star of Bones. Um, but, you know, at the time she was a 12 year old, same as I was. Uh, she got a call at their house um, for her dad from his AD, the assistant director, about Killer Bob. And, um, you know, that absolutely left her completely mystified and frightened. And I totally get it, Emily. <laughs> now, as far as the, uh, the, the writer of this episode, Scott Frost, um, he enjoy. I mean, he he absolutely enjoys the happenstance to put his episode right in the right in the middle of the best three arc episode of Twin Peaks. Um, and um, as far as writing Bob, he said, "I think to make it real, you have to write it in a way that Bob was the evil that's in all men. It's not that he's an actual physical presence. When things go off the rails." He's what's every <clears throat> he's what's waiting for anybody. That makes it more human. And what did Frost director this episode think about Bob? Well, Deschanel said in uh, Twin Peaks Unwrapped that I think the killer he sees in the mirror. I, I I think the killer he sees in the mirror. It's like having an alter ego. It's somebody who exists in him. It's like somebody having dual personalities. And then in Reflections, he said about James and Donna's obliviousness, he said, the fact that we can be blind to the most obvious demonstrations of insanity is really sort of wonderful. Now, as far as everyone's memory serves, it's kind of tough to tell whether Scott Frost actually finished um, the autobiography of Special Agent Dale Cooper, My Life, My Tapes, uh, before this happened or right after. But... Um, what we can tell you is that this episode aired on Saturday, November 17th to 13.3 million viewers. And um, that's um, those ratings fall just between episode 10's 13.8 and episode 11's 12.8. So um, 
you know, it's a 4 million viewer loss from last week, 17.4. But the fact that it goes back to episode 10 and episode 11's numbers, that means that, um, that it really did still save about a month of um, ratings drop. So that got us into the, uh, the January, February range of being able to air episodes. And as far as me personally goes, um, this period where we knew who Leland was, but that he was on the loose, it felt like I, I was for sure that this was like a six episode arc, um, you know, counting, counting the murder episode, um, and I assume that he, he was running around town for so long, but it's actually just two episodes. It's this one and the next one. Um, why did it feel that way? I mean, you know, part of it was because I was 12 and, <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it, uh, it, it held a little bit more preoccupation, uh, these couple of weeks for me than even earlier Twin Peaks did. Um, but also because in real time, um, the week after this was the week of Thanksgiving, and it was basically an off week for most programming at the time. I don't know. I mean, they might have been, you know, showing football games or something. I, I don't even remember. <laughs> but, um, yeah, like th this, um, this had a holiday where I was, like, ruminating about it. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, two full weeks of the end of this episode where they find Manny Ferguson in the lake and um you know then almost a full episode then of resolution trying to get to the end of it so it felt a lot longer even though it was two weeks because it was actually just three weeks so you know we we kind of split the difference between my memory and um how it actually works with streaming okay so we've had a decent look at the um the, the behind-the-scenes stuff, and now we're going to look into uh, Lynch's final words during the Log Lady intros when he's trying to uh, put the final stamp on what we're supposed to get out of these episodes. And Margaret says, Food is interesting. For instance, why do we need to eat? Why are we never satisfied with just the right amount of food to maintain good, healthy, and health and proper energy? We always seem to want more and more. When eating too much, the proper balance is disturbed and ill health follows. Of course, eating too little food throws the balance off in the opposite direction. And there is the ill health coming at us again. Balance is the key. Balance is the key to many things. Do we understand balance? The word balance has seven letters. Seven is difficult to balance, but not impossible. We are able to divide. There are, of course, the pros and cons of division. Okay, so let's start looking at this with the eating part. You know, it's like, why, why the focus on eating? I mean, sure, there's the double R and, you know, the, the, um, the good intuition that seems to come from, like, cherry pie and coffee. But um, why else do they need to eat in this episode? I mean, like, why... Um, why around this episode would they be talking about it? Well, last episode, it might be because, um, you know, the, the eating, eating peanuts at the roadhouse that possibly helped Cooper see the giant. Um, and then there's the whole satisfaction of it all. You know, it's like Bob eats all of that. You know, he, he, um, 
he consumes. That's his thing. Um, so, you know, it's like there's satisfaction with just the right amount of food. You know, it's like, does that meet full satisfaction or does it not? Um, you know, the, the circle of appetite and satisfaction that Michael mentioned next episode, you know, it's, it, it's basically like want in that um, Bob wants, not needs. Um, you know, want is not concerned with balance. It's just about wanting. And we've got too much that leads to ill health, um, ill health, negative frequency. Um, you know, there, there's this, um, you know, the, the, uh, the negative frequency always courts want. Um, that's where Mr. C is. That's where Bob is. That's where, um, you know, the, the Horn brothers always eating, um, you know, they're, they're on this, this imbalanced way of just having appetite. And as far as balance goes, seven letters in balance. Okay, seven is hard to balance, but not impossible. You know, it's like you can you can balance it on the middle letter, and then the three letters on either side can keep it in balance. I mean, technically, there's that, too. You know, it's hard to keep it up there, <laughs> but you can technically do it. And, you know, seven is a magic number anyway, according to Lynch. You know, it's like every time he... Uh, Every, every time, oh my gosh, I can't think of the name of it, but that one YouTube series that he does where he, like, you know, the number of the day and, like, he selects a ball and, like, every time it's a seven, he gets, like, extra happy about it. So, you know, balance is one of those magic numbers and magic words, it seems like, anyway, in his world. As far as dividing it into two, I'm assuming that means, you know, the good Cooper and the bad Cooper is what's being referenced in a way. And also that um, you're referencing Leland and Bob. You know, the, the pros and the cons of division say, you know, Dougie being the pro and Mr. C being the con, maybe. Whatever kind of answers you get from it, we are just about ready to start breaking down the full episode now. And um, before that, we're going to listen to some words from our fellow podcasters on the Ruminations Radio Network. Hey kids, it's Don Shanahan from the Cinephile Hissy Fit, one of the podcasts on the Ruminations Radio Network. If you've been enjoying this show, come listen to Will Johnson and I fight it out over cinema's best and worst on Cinephile Hissy Fit. Find us and all the great shows over on RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. All right, welcome back. Um, as far as the log lady intro uh talking about balance i mean this this whole episode is slightly off balance um because the whole episode seems inverted um you know is is um does food come up today not because there's a whole bunch of double r uh scenes because there aren't um but is it because bob is eating well today because there's so much reason for uh you know, Garmin Bosia or the uh, the fears and the pleasures. Yeah, all of Twin Peaks is pretty much out of balance because it is inverted. And um, that leads us to our first big question for the episode. How is the supernatural inverted now that Bob has killed again? Now, he may only be in three scenes and, um, you know, not at all even in the fourth act. but. Um, Leland is practically the star of this show. It follows his path from golfing to almost killing Cooper at the end of the third act. And, um, you know, even though he's missing in the fourth act, 
Um, the fourth act ends with his handiwork revealed to the heroes. But, you know, his presence alone doesn't mean that everything's inverted. How how are things specifically inverted? We've got the spirits not just existing in the darkness. You know, this episode to me as as a 12-year-old was almost just as terrifying as the last one for two simple moments. So we've got Bob being seen in the Palmer mirror during the day. You know, James and Donna leave. And then Bob checks his tie in the mirror and then smiles. You know, then after that, he readies his club for more golfing. But Sarah calls again, proving that she doesn't feel anything suspicious from last night. Yeah, so as I said a little bit earlier, James and Donna, like, they don't recognize Leland's craziness. And, um, you know, we've got Sarah trying to kind of interrupt where she, um, she calls for Leland. And then, you know, it's like, you're not quite sure what's going on. Like, will she recognize it, even though James and Donna don't? Um, and, you know, he he walks over to her. And, um, you know, her, her big comment is, remember to sign us up for Glenn Miller night at the club. Well, I mean, I guess he doesn't walk over to her right then. But, you know, it's like you still wonder what she's going to say, but then she's acting like it's a regular morning. Leland slash Bob, they go over to the closet. He unzips the uh, the large Maddie bag in the closet to stow his club. And, um, you know, he takes the bag to his trunk, you know, and, and, you know, I'm noticing, I don't know how many other viewers are noticing how many times he's bumping it against the wall or anything. And, um, you know, he's whistling Surrey with a fringe on top as he's, um, you know, driving away with his, his convertible. And, you know, the convertible's going down uh, while Maddie's in the trunk. And, um, you know, he backs out of the driveway. So, you know, we have a fairly knowledgeable uh, Leland and Bob driving out in the middle of the day. And then here's the, the moment that really got me that episode. Um, you know, it's like after Truman calls Cooper back, you know, they found Gerard and, um, you know, Leland smiles as they're driving away after almost cl- uh, after almost clubbing uh, Cooper with a golf club. You know, it's like Leland's got this expression on his face that's like, well, I guess I'll get him next time. And, um, you know, then we see the rearview mirror. Uh, where we see Bob being the one smiling. And that means not only are the spirits in the daytime, but if I'm freaking out about mirrors, if I'm driving in the backseat of my parents' car, (laughs) there's still a rearview mirror following me around. So, you know, I think that that was an excellent use of horror in this part of the episode because, you know, it's like, you know, it's like, no mirrors are off limits, anyone. <laughs> Bob can be anywhere, and you can spot Bob anywhere. Now, we've had Gerard existing in the daytime before now, but, you know, he's likely a positive force because his goal is to stop him. Uh, you know, yet, um, you know, even Gerard, we see him a little bit more active and more wild, uh, more desperate, really. You know, before being apprehended by the police, you know, he, he was able to exist as a shoe salesman um, pretty regularly, too. But, you know, here we've got Gerard in a shirt covering himself, but that shoulder 
where his missing arm is is going crazy. Um, you know, the, the, the gum blowing nurse notices him wake, but you know, he has wild eyes in that, in that room in the uh, great Northern. And, uh, you can tell right away that he's Mike. And, you know, then he confirms it by saying he's close. And, you know, the nurse goes out to get him a water that he requests and a deputy comes in, but, you know, Mike is already out of his bed. Then, you know, he, he comes in from behind the deputy clubs him on the back and, um, you know, he says, I'm sorry, and skitters out the window. So, you know, Mike is actually exhibiting manners here and um, and an awareness of the physical world with consequences. But, you know, other than that, he's still going to skitter out the window like he's some kind of owl. Though later on, as I already said, you know, he's caught in um, at the end of the third act. And then we see him um in the the beginning of the fourth act, prowling around the uh, the arms crossed Ben Horn, uh, you know, which is absolutely hysterical. I mean, he's like a bloodhound, and you know, he's saying he's very close, but Bob is not here now. So you know, we've got the supernatural confirmation that Ben Horn and Bob are not the same. And uh, you know, we've got Jerry doing you. Know, Who's Bob? Do you know Bob? I don't know any Bob. So you know, it's like we've got these. Um, We've got these moments with Mike where, you know, even though we've seen him interact with um, random people in that great northern scene where, you know, he says no multiple times, um, we've never really seen him interact with any of the normies of uh, Twin Peaks. And, uh, you know, here we've got him sniffing around uh, Ben and Jerry Horn. So even though he's been in the day, you know, it's like he's never interacted with that that many sides of Twin Peaks as Mike. And he is doing that, too. So, you know, he still kind of fits in with this inversion that's happening. And then this episode ends with the handiwork of Bob and Leland uh, being discovered at night, the last thing before bed, rather than the first time Bob's handiwork was uh, was discovered which was the very first thing in the morning so you know it's like the sun is down now and um you know we've got the phone ringing in cooper's room while he's talking to audrey he tells her you know go to your room and lock the door no questions uh they leave at the same time then we get a waterfall transition and then we're in a wooded area where harry and cooper are walking a path toward the camera almost like they're from a a regular crime scene and you know it's like they just continue to walk it's very dramatic. <laughs> and, um, you know, there's lights set up. There's a number of cops around. And uh, Maddie's plastic, uh, ra- you know, M- Maddie's wrapped in plastic body is being fished out of the water by at least two officers. And, um, you know, this operation is way more city style. It's way more, um, uh, what, Hill Street Blues laced or, you know, whatever kind of crime procedurals were happening around that. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's it's cold and efficient. And, um, you know, what we've got here is she's immediately noticed uh, before she leaves the water and uh, she's actively recovered. And uh, we've got Harry unwrapping her right away without a ton of heart. You know, there's no Doc Hayward next to him. Uh, there's no crying photographer and, uh, you know, really no photographer at all that I've seen. And, um, you know, it's like not getting her on film. Does that mean something? But um, still, we've got Harry announcing it's Maddie Ferguson. And we've got Cooper looking stern at the end. 
And honestly, that end of the episode is an end to an investigation that itself has been inverted this whole episode. You know, we have Leland on the prowl. We know who he is and where he is, and the heroes don't. And, you know, we've got we've got Cooper and Harry walking into the Great Northern, and um, and this Great Northern scene starts with Cooper leaving a note for Diane um, about, about Mike. And, um, you know, he, he says to Diane, you know, uh, Sheriff Truman and I have just been with the one-armed man or what's left of him. In another time, another culture, he may have been a seer, a Shaolin priest. In our world, he's a shoe salesman and lives among the shadows. So we get kind of an idea of um, the relationship of Mike with the law enforcement here. You know, the, the focus goes immediately off that into, um, you know, Leland Palmer, who is singing and dancing to everyone in the lobby. And, you know, they pull him aside, but they do it to say that Ben has been arrested. And, you know, of course, he reacts to the news like, you know, like he's stifling being upset. And then, you know, a after a point, he says the the law will handle this, you know, as if he's learned a lesson from Jacques Renault. Um, but, you know, he goes around the corner and he's sick with sadness. But, you know, it's not actually sadness. It's also laughter. And, you know, the implied tone that we get from this is, I can't believe these idiots are letting me pull this off. But, you know, of course, the, the part that Cooper sees, you know, he decides to follow Leland around. And, you know, he hears Leland's noises, and, but all he sees is Leland's shoulders from the back and, you know, his buried head. And, um, you know, all he can say to Leland is, if you can remember anything about Mr. Horn's behavior the night of Laura's death, can you please let me know? And, uh, you know, Leland appeases him and, you know, Cooper walks away. But, you know, there's more laughing from Leland, you know, in this mocking expression. And, um, you know, Cooper Cooper's back with Harry and Harry says, everything OK? And uh, Cooper says, I'm not sure. So, like, you can kind of tell he can. He can feel something, but, you know, at this point, he still doesn't know what it is. Um, you know, next time we see Cooper, um, you know, he's taking Harry away from a conversation with Pete to hunt for the now missing Gerard. Um, but, you know, while they're on a quest to find this, this spirit, Mike, uh, who can catch the killer, they have a run in with the killer, though they can't see it. And, you know, we've got Leland driving like shit on both sides of the road, you know, still singing uh, Sir, You're the Fringe on Top. And, um, you know, Cooper is still connected to this because he's whistling the same song. Is this Cooper's intuition leading him in the right direction? Or could we see this as an early sign that he's also marked as a Bob host? You know, there's there's reasons for that, especially since he lets Leland walk away. We've got Leland singing still uh, driving in the car when when the uh, when Harry puts the cruiser's lights on and, you know, he just says, uh oh. And, uh, you know, when they get him, he acts all concerned. But he must have been, you know, be because, you know, uh, he tells him, oh, I must have been thinking about Ben. And, uh, <laughs> you know, then he gives them this little detail about, you know, oh, and, the, and that night, you know, Ben said something about a dairy and. Um, you know, Cooper leads the witness and says, a diary? Yes, yes, a diary on the phone late one night. And, um, you know, this is when Lucy calls Harry away on the horn. And, 
you know, right before Leland could clobber Cooper, that's when Harry tells Cooper that, you know, they found Gerard and, you know, then, you know, they're, they're, they're actively investigating the wrong man. Because the next time we see their investigation, we've got Mike prowling around Ben Horn. And, um, you know, Jerry just gets mad at this because he, um, you know, he, <laughs> he has a very narrow band of what's, what's, um, what's lawyerly about him and you know he's like your 24 hours are up and then of course harry immediately charges ben but i think cooper realizes that something is wrong and you know he he immediately you know calls calls harry outside you know it's like harry would you come outside please yeah what does he say he says harry i think we're saddling the horse before we're ready to ride and uh you know truman of course you know i don't follow and uh <laughs> You know, Cooper says, I don't think Ben Horn killed Laura Palmer. I mean, yeah, it's because Bob isn't present there. But, you know, Sheriff Truman's all like, what? Uh, you know, it's like, Cooper, I've backed you every step of the way, but I've had enough of the mumbo jumbo. I've had enough of the dreams, the visions, the dwarfs, the giants, Tibet, and the rest of the hocus pocus. Now we've got hard evidence against Ben Horn, and it's my job to lock him up. And Cooper says, you're right, Harry, this is your backyard. Sometimes an outsider can forget that. You know, th this kind of rhymes with how Cooper didn't question Sternwood's verdict about releasing Leland. You know, granted, then no dream elements made him feel uneasy at the roadhouse. But, you know, we, we've got a bit of a double standard. You know, even, even though in this instance uh, Cooper is right, you know, it's like question, question the part about Leland too, Cooper. But anyway, he he does end, quote unquote, his investigation, um, this episode in his room. Um, we've got an open window with the curtains blowing just, you know, I mean, it, it's likened a lot to the Gerard out the window scene. And, um, you know, we, we're looking at Cooper's end table where they've got, you know, a, a, a trove of um, you know, show hallmarks. You know, we've got the cherry pie with a fork. We've got the milk in a glass. We've got the recorder. We've got the lamp, the phone, all the, all represented like it's a still life picture. And, uh, you know, Cooper shirtless arm reaches over. Um, and, you know, he makes another note to Diane that, that Ben Horn is in custody. And then he says, the trail narrows. I'm very close, but the last few steps are always the darkest and the most difficult. So he's understanding that something is wrong here. But then he gets a knock on his door and it's Audrey Horn. Um, you know, of course, by this point, he's already put on a shirt and, you know, he draws his gun because he's learned his lesson from being shot at the end of episode seven. And Audrey just wants to, you know, talk to him about, the ramifications of her information um and you know audrey's player is actually playing in the er, er, prayer <laughs> audrey's prayer plays in the background here and um it's um it's that song that's also questions in the world of, uh, in a world of blue that's on the fire walk with me soundtrack uh just without vocals and um you know she's asking you know, it's like did you arrest him yeah did he do it uh that's for a court to decide and in, instead of, you know, coming right out like you did with Harry. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, she tries to discover if her words are uh, 
you know, that if they caused the arrest or, you know, that they at least helped. And then she finally explains some of her logic. You know, she says, all I ever wanted was for him to love me. And, you know, he, he answers her. I'm sure that he does. But then she says, he's ashamed of me. And, um, you know, no, he's not. And, you know, then, of course, she shifts gears and she climbs onto his bed and assures her him of her sexual purity after her time at One-Eyed Jacks. You know, it's like, no one ever. You know, <laughs> it's like, because those are virtues that were um, absolutely concerns in 1990 uh, when you're trying to potentially set up a, uh, a um, what, a... Um, a love story between these two characters but you know of course we can't we can't go into that too far even though i don't think cooper wants to go too far with it um but you know that's when the phone rings three times and um you know so so basically um to answer audrey's question all of the stuff that audrey helped with didn't actually catch the killer and um you know, Cooper's investigation instincts seem proven correct here. In this inverted episode, we've got a whole bunch more of Twin Peaks than just Cooper and Leland and the investigation. Um, we've got we've got the whole town under the same kind of weather pattern. And um, how is Twin Peaks managing its secrets here? First off, we've got Jerry trying. I mean, we've got Jerry being a bad lawyer but trying not to be you know he knows he's out of his depth and um you know we get him we get him first in ben horn's cell um you know ben's wiping down everything with uh toilet paper you know even his toothbrush uh, <laughs> you know then then ben's brushing his teeth which doesn't rhyme with anything in the future even though it's sort of on theme somehow um and, you know, Jerry starts out by saying, you know, since Ben's regular mouthpiece is charged with murder himself. So right here, one episode before Leland uh, gets called in to uh, represent Ben Horn in the uh, climactic scenes of uh, episode 16, we've got Jerry being, you know, recognizing the fact that Leland killed Jacques and that that's something that they're still thinking about. And um, we've got Jerry handling this case personally because Leland is indisposed. So, yeah, even though it's easy to skip over next episode when the plot is um, super compressed and Cooper's trying to spring a trap that we all know why. Um, yeah, we've we've got it here where Jerry kind of actually gets it for a change. And, um, you know, his first question to Ben is, did you kill her? <laughs> and uh you know just like just like he says to audrey um you know a few episodes ago we've got ben who doesn't say no here you know he just says i was with catherine that night so you know not finding an easy answer uh jerry jerry finds a way to shift away from that and you know they retreat to the past you know he notices the bunk beds and he starts thinking about louise dombrowski and um you know, they, they have a, a more innocent dream to remember here, you know, and it's, it's all this uh, choppy footage and the girl has, you know, um, you know, it's like there's frames removed from in between. So it kind of gives this impression that 
it's definitely not of this time, which works out really nicely. Um, but you know, there, there's this, um, there's this extended, um, flashback of the Horn brothers watching her and, um, you know, then it's back to now and both the guys are on a bunk bed, just like in the flashback. And uh, Jerry Horn says, Lord, what's become of us? The next part of Ben's side of the investigation, we, you know, there's this big production with rubber gloves, which seems to me kind of a reference to the last episode with Leland and his rubber gloves. But it's Doc Hayward here. And, um, you know, they're comedically implying that Ben's going to get a cavity search, even though it's actually just about a blood uh, blood test. And, um, you know, Jerry's only move here is charge my client or let him go. And, you know, in response at this point, uh, you know, Cooper done, Cooper runs down this laundry list of Jerry's setbacks and failures and delays. And, um you know, then then Cooper puts the diary in front of Ben, uh, tells Ben essentially that we all know Laura wants to reveal Ben Horn's uh, one-eyed Jack's connections, which rattled Ben a lot for all this. Um, and um, at this point, you know, the the investigators leave Ben and Jerry alone, um, and Jerry says, you know, your alibi is roasted. They can make a motive, and. Um, this is the only time he can admit his uh, his weakness. He says, I strongly suggest you get yourself a better lawyer. But, um, but you know, I mean, Ben can't get a better lawyer that day. And when Mike is prowling around him, you know, doing the sniff test, you know, it's like Ben is, uh, you know, Bob was, Bob was close, but he is not here now. Um, you know, Jerry, he just gets frustrated and he lets his anger kind of take over. And he's like, "Who? who's Bob? Do you know Bob? I don't know. I don't know any Bob. And then he gets mad and says, your 24 hours are up. And then Harry immediately charges Ben with more. So, you know, um, Jerry knew he still tried to put on the fact that he was a, a lawyer up to the task and then when he wasn't his brother gets more arrested he gets charged this time and we've got bobby across town somewhere um hiding his kiddishness the fact that he's still a high schooler in these big dumb plans um you know so so he's here in this episode listening to leo's tape which is um you know, the, the same tape that we hear with um, with that Red Corvette meeting in the dark uh, between Ben and Leo discussing the mill. And, um, you know, Ben basically um, being on tape saying, yes, I want arson. So um, from that, Bobby writes a note on a piece of paper that says, dear Ben, I think we should talk. He puts the letter and tape into an envelope and... Um, you know, then Shelley enters, and um, Manchin Amick uh, made a note about this in Reflections, basically saying that, um, oh, uh, uh, she came in this episode with, um, you know, Leo food all over her, and, uh, you know, Bobby is licking it off her chest at this point. And um, Amick said, one of my favorite scenes is when Bobby and I are feeding Eric in the, in the coma, and, yeah. <clears throat> when when Bobby and I are feeding Eric in the coma, 
the baby food. And then Eric hiccups and spits the food all over me. So she basically um, confirms that, or then she keeps going and says, getting the three of us together on set was always trouble. So she's having fun with this whole thing. And um, you can tell everybody is. And uh, she notices, uh, Shelly notices the envelope that Bobby just put down on a table and said, um, you know, she she loves the sound of Bobby putting on the bravado. You know, it's like, I'm going to go into business. I'm thinking about executive suite. And, you know, she's practically purring at this point, you know, rather than any asking any questions. Um, you know, she just wants the payday to happen. And, you know, what does she want from this payday? She says, a full-time nanny. And then he says, maybe a French maid. And, you know, of course, there's more chemistry between them, more kissing. And next we've got Vivian. She's hiding her food critic role under cruelty of being an overbearing mother. You know, she's assessing the potatoes, um, you know, spitting them out and all <laughs> Uh, whatever else, you know, she, uh, she's looking for Henry, who is what she, uh, that, that's what she calls Hank. So Hank is living under a nickname, which, uh, historically is, um, you know, things that people in the drug scene do. Um, but, you know, she's looking for his real authentic name. And, um, you know, she comes up to, um, she comes up to Norma and introduces her new husband, Ernie, a financial analyst and then she grades the flowers and the uniforms and norma points out that um that vivian gave no notice about arriving and that uh norma's on edge about the food critic coming and um vivian notices norma did all this because of the critic not for herself so i'm assuming that's points docked on the empty once review later now, later on, Norma grills Hank for Hank going missing when Hank finally shows up after the last time we see him is with Jean Renault at One-Eyed Jacks, and, um, you know, Jean has the drop on him. It, it doesn't matter how that turns out because Vivian is perfectly comfortable talking about or talking to Hank afterward. You know, she loves this guy. She invites him happily, and, you know, I guess Norma got invited, too, to dinner. And, you know, then we've got uh, dinner with the Jennings where Vivian is critiquing the food. But, you know, she's just displayed as being criminally overbearing. And, um, you know, to go along with that overbearing thing, you know, it's like Norma just wants to get away to the restroom from this dinner situation. But, you know, Vivian joins her. You know, so she Vivian cannot be anything but oppressive to Norma in this in this episode, you know, even though she's actually just a food critic on a job here. And speaking of her financial analyst, new husband, Ernie, um, Ernie is hiding his past from Vivian here. And, um, you know, it's basically to manipulate the situation to his advantage. Um, so yeah, Vivian introduces him as her new husband, a financial analyst, but after they leave that, the diner in that, in that introductory scene, Norma picks up Ernie's old newspaper, and there's these gambling notes by by a write-up of a game coming. So, you know, he is definitely a gambler here. Even though at that dinner scene later, 
you know, we we've got Hank eating like a savage with a napkin, like up by his uh, up by his neck, um, <laughs> and then Ernie is in a tie here. And you know, when the ladies do leave for the bathroom, Ernie and Hank share this familiar laugh. Now that they finally have a moment alone, and it's Ernie, the Professor Niles, who has been inside, and um, he got out six months before Hank did. And he's trying to hide his current situation from Vivian, but he's also uh, masking over his situation with Hank. You know, he says, you know, oh, I met Vivian at a Republican fundraiser trying to tell the truth these days. And, um, you know, it's a, he, he's doing all these things like where, you know, it's like, dude, I really am trying to turn over a new leaf here. Um and, uh, you know, then he kind of keeps going and says, and Vivian wants him to handle all her investments. So there it is. You know, it's like, let, let me let me have this thing. Hank is essentially what he's trying to convince Hank of here. And, um, you know, he says, you know, he doesn't gamble anymore, which is already proven as a lie. So, you know, I'm looking for a clean slate. So at this point, Hank absolutely knows that. Ernie can't handle his secrets very well. So, you know, we've got Hank angling for the price of Hank of, of Hank's silence over this. And um, Hank is hiding his knowledge this whole episode in order to profit from these transactions. You know, with, um, with Hank arriving, you know, 48 hours later isn't late. Um, you know, Norma is cold to him. And, you know, where has he been? Uh, you know, sure, it's something to do with Jean Renault, but here, um, the way he puts it is, you know, people from his past want to see him fail. Sometimes it's best to hole up and wait for the storm to pass. And um, we've got Norma half buying it, but you know, what she does add is ask for help next time. So she's definitely on the positive frequency when she can be even to him, like she always gives the benefit of the doubt that somebody might actually be truthful. But then, you know, we've got secret keeping Vivian, who is totally buying his charms and probably sees a, uh, a kindred spirit in him. And, you know, they, she does happily invite him to Norma uh, to, and Norma to dinner. And, you know, we've got Hank Hank eating, you know, like a, like a blue collar man. And, uh, you know, then they, uh, then he and Ernie have their conversation. And, um, you know, now Hank is angling for his, uh, for his price to, um, you know, stay silent for Ernie. And, um, yeah. And, and, you know, like, what does he do? He's like, one must be ready to pay any price for family. Don't you agree? And, um, you know, by that point, the, uh, the women return and Hank proceeds to um propose a toast to the newlyweds and you know and their success in future dealings and i assume that one of those dealings has to do with him and ernie and um you know norma knows that hank is up to something with that toast and ernie knows exactly what that something is now vivian's not the only overbearing family member introduced in this episode we've also got gwen who is um <clears throat> who is Lucy's sister. And um, what she's inadvertently doing is blocking Andy from coming clean with his own secrets, which are, you know, just private matters at this point. 
that, you know, he was allowed to have to himself. But, you know, it's like the secrets with Andy and Lucy are being hampered by this whole thing. So um, at the beginning of the episode, Lucy, Gwen, and Gwen's baby arrive. You know, they're dressed identical. They have the same vocal tones. They, they've got the same kind of hairstyle. But Gwen is absolutely obnoxious. You know, she comes in and talks to Hawk. You know, it's like, oh, you must hate us white people. And, you know, <laughs> Hawk gets to throw a variation of a line at her, basically saying, some of my best friends are white people. And, um, <laughs> you know, so, like, we we're we're told right away what to think of Gwen. And, um, you know, later on, Andy arrives and sees Lucy with Gwen's baby. And, you know, after some failed computing up in his brain, he faints backwards. You know, it's like, Andy, that is not a baby that Lucy might have just had on her couple of days off. But anyway, later on, we've got Hawk actually bringing in Philip Gerard. Uh, to the station, but the camera stays on Gwen and Andy, who has ice on his head from that fall, and Lucy, who's holding the ice on his head. And, you know, Andy's dying to talk with Lucy, um, except every time he does, you know, Gwen leans in and she's like, ha ha, sperm gun, you know, like all that, you know, like she, uh, you know, eventually what has to happen is Andy and Lucy both tell her to shut up and Gwen huffs off. And this is when we finally get Andy explaining that, um, you know, why he didn't think that um, he could be the father of Lucy's kid. But, you know, now he got his test back from Doc Hayward and he's a whole damn town, essentially. But, you know, now he knows he's the father. And, you know, we've got Lucy now taking the time to not have explained her secrets. And she just says, oh, brother. Uh, and then, you know, Gwen passive aggressively uh, hovers on the other side of the room talking to her baby. So, you know, thanks, Gwen. Uh, Andy and Lucy aren't allowed to just have their conversation. As far as the B and C plot um, situations left, I think Pete is the last one. And uh, he's basically hiding his imp self um, from from Harry. And, um, you know, then he'll end up kind of revealing it to Ben Horn. And uh, so basically, we've got him and Harry talking about, you know, Harry. You know, well, I mean, first they talk about fish. Um, or, I mean, a woodpecker. And, you know, then, um, you know, eventually he says, Harry, Josie's gone. And, um, you know, they start talking about Josie together, commiserating in their loss. And, um, you know, they talk about, you know, how uh, how Jonathan has different titles. You know, it's like, oh, his, his cousin, or I mean, her cousin. And uh, no, he's, uh, he's her assistant, Mr. Lee. And, uh, you know, both are suspicious, but they're expressing their love for her. And, um, you know, then Cooper interrupts at this point and says, Gerard's missing. And, you know, they leave Pete alone. And, um, you know, this is when... Pete sneaks off to in front of Ben's cell and, you know, he's cackling and he's delivering an audio message to Ben. Like, you know, he's pan in a Shakespeare play, the, the, like the, uh, the mischievous trickster. And, um, you know, her message on the tape is, you know, basically she's alive and, um, she, she confirms Ben's alibi and basically says in exchange for her testimony, 
He'll sign the mill and goes to estates over to her, and then she'll consider him keeping his hotel. So Pete loves this. You know, he's absolutely cackling the whole time. But of course, Ben doesn't. You know, twice she said, twice he says she set me up, and you know, then he beats the crap out of his bedding after Pete leaves, and you know it's only then when a deputy steps in to check on the feathery situation, you know, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to do with the, uh, the older gentleman playing the voice of someone who's presumed dead, you know, it's gotta be after that. But all I can figure out for Pete is that, you know, he was actually there to deliver the message to Ben, but, you know, then he sidetracks over to Harry. So, you know, is he, is he kind of putting on a ruse for Harry or is he kind of doing this, uh, you know, it's like, okay, I'll do this one for Catherine, but I'm going to do this one for me too. You know, I, I kind of think it's like that with Pete because he's got these two sides that, you know, we'll see a lot after Andrew Packard shows up on camera. But um, yeah, like right here, it just kind of seems like this weird duality in play. And um when he lets go for Catherine's plan, he really lets go. Because, you know, in season one, we only saw that he was this, um, you know, beleaguered husband who, uh, who you know, didn't seem to really want to go along with any of it in a way. You know, it's like he was actively trying to fight against her with Josie. And, you know, here we've got Pete absolutely in lockstep with Catherine. You know, who knows? Maybe it's the fact that... Um, you know, he's he's getting one over on the guy who's actually more romantically involved with Catherine than he is. Who knows? But um, either way, it's interesting to see Pete's duality starting to show itself here. And uh, speaking of duality, uh, I think it's time to jump into the relationship between Bob and Leland. So Bob and Leland. I mean, this episode was absolutely terrifying to me. Uh, because Bob exists in the daytime, Bob exists in cars, and, you know, any mirror is fair game now, you know? Okay, so that's that's part of what I was operating on. And um, as I was, as I've been seeing this over the years, I've been assuming that um, Bob is basically in charge at this point. Like, ever since he rears his head back uh, and then kills Maddie, I kind of feel like Bob has been more in control than Leland and possibly completely in control. Yeah, I'm I'm going to test that in this episode. But um it seems like um you know the fir the first thing we get with the establishing shot and um you know hearing the the drama horns and um you know the um the, the lights are on in the Palmer house. It's nighttime. And then we hear screaming and somebody help me, except it's all in regular speed. So that kind of gives me the impression of the relationship between real life and Bob. And, you know, it's like when you're in the vortex, everything kind of slows down and becomes dreamy. But then when you're out of the vortex, it still just looks like, you know, maybe Gordon Cole on a lot, just kind of waving his hands in a weird way. And like, you're not quite sure what could be weird about it. And, you know, I, I feel like there's a vortex of some sort in the Palmer house right now. And 
we hear what it sounds like when you're not like immediately in that vortex. And it sounds like a real life situation where maybe if you look in the window, you see this, um, this neighborhood local lawyer uh, killing his niece. And immediately from that, um, from that establishing shot, we get another one where it's tree branches on a white sky and it looks very artistic overall. But then, you know, it pans down to that same house, except now it's in the daytime. And, um, you know, it's like we see the photos, the homecoming photo of Laura. Um, to the left, it's uh, Cheryl Lee as a grade schooler. And then further left, it's uh, it's Lee probably as a high schooler. Um, and then, you know, we hear the sounds of the balls being hit and we hear Leland sort of laughing. Uh, you know, you pan down to, to the couch where Maddie was getting punched, um, except now there's golf balls on it. Um, then we go down to the carpet where there's a whole bunch more balls. A, um, and then, you know, a small green rectangular turf and then Leland. And, um, you know, it seems like Leland is back at the time, but, you know, he's practicing driving these balls and he's hitting them as if he were hitting them through the sky, except that, you know, in a house, you're hitting them too far. And then hence they're everywhere behind him on furniture, uh, you know, everywhere except where he's probably imagining they're going. So it's this like sort of regular behavior that a uh, that a well-to-do white man would do. Except, you know, it's in this weird way where the balls aren't doing uh, what they want because it's in the wrong venue for it. And um, then we also see the new rug over the uh, over the bloodstained flooring, probably. An interesting thing I wonder if they're doing on purpose is Ray Wise regular colors starting to kind of grow in under the bleach now. And it appears more of a gray and um, is that on purpose? Because now we know that, you know, Bob is a gray-haired man, that kind of thing. Um, you know, wh whether it's absolutely on purpose or just happenstance, it's a really nice effect now that we know where Bob is. So when Donna and James arrive to say goodbye to Maddie, um, you know, Leland says, oh, you just missed her. In fact, I just dropped her off at the bus station not 20 minutes ago. And he guilts them right here. You know, he says, Maddie thought you were coming over last night. She was a little bit disappointed. So, you know, not only are, are we kind of like playing off of what happened last night and like, you know, maybe Maddie <laughs> would be, you know, still here if uh, they had come by last night. You know, it's like, who knows? Yeah, I mean, of course she would be disappointed that they missed uh, interrupting her murder. Um, but, you know, while they're here, we hear um, we hear Sarah call from the top of the stairs. Um, you know, she calls twice for Leland here. Um, and, you know, it's like, we're absolutely concerned because like, she's not coming around the corner into the rest of the house. You know, is she actually unhinged from last night? And, um, you know, Leland excuses themselves. James and Donna look around at the balls everywhere. And, you know, they, you know, say, Oh, Leland is wacky. Ha ha ha. Um, and, um, you know, then Leland heads back down the stairs with Sarah waiting where she originally was. And, um, you know, it's like we still don't know exactly where Sarah is at after last night's, um, you know, passing out in the living room. So, you know, who knows what she remembers right now. But, you know, it's like we'll know later on that 
it just kind of goes away like it never even happened. But right here, it's very ominous. Um, you know, halfway back from Sarah, he puts on a serious face in the hallway. Um, but then, you know, he, he puts on the Leland voice, too, where it's like, oh, you could write her. And, you know, James and Donna leave. And that's when we see Bob checking himself in the mirror. And then he smiles. At this point, Leland, you know, starts readying his clubs for more golfing. But, you know, Sarah calls him again. Um, and, you know, this is where she says, remember to sign us up for Glenn Miller night at the club. So, you know, we know that Sarah is not suspicious of him or scared of him or anything like that. She just wants a normal life again. Uh, and, you know, forget whatever she must have forgotten about last night. And then we've got, you know, Leland whistling and, you know, uh, the, the surrey with the fringe on top. And, you know, he's bumping the, the Maddie bag into everything on the way to his car trunk. And, you know, then he backs out of the driveway like nothing's the matter. It makes me, um, you know, it's like I'm I'm always wondering, just like, just like any like hefty debate about this, you know, it's like, how much is Leland? How much is Bob? And, um, I never really wondered, um, this particular angle, but Cameron Crane over at his 25YL article, uh, TV peaks episode 15 takes us out in the Surrey with the fringe on top. He says, um, I have often wondered with those aforementioned shots of Leland looking into the mirror to see Bob grinning back at him. Whether Leland always knew about Bob or was only just discovering him here. In other words, was this merely a reveal to the audience of Twin Peaks? What may be the obvious interpretation? Or is it perhaps rather a showing of the reveal of Leland Bob to himself? There is no reason to think that Bob was always perspicuous to Leland, if you think about it. After all, what is Bob if not a certain kind of personification of the deepest, darkest impulses of the unconscious? A supernatural being, perhaps? Maybe so, but even then, it would make sense to think of Bob as being hidden within Leland and only made manifest to him in those days leading up to episode 15. Here now, things are fully clear. The smiling man looks back at Leland, from behind the glass and at the same and the same sort of maniacal grin takes over Leland's face at the Great Northern after Coop tell <clears throat> Cooper and Truman tell him that they have arrested Ben Horn. It is a moment that lodges in your psyche as Leland cries, laughs, smiles upward, a congealing of various human elements into an expression that is hard to describe with words. Everybody run. And I could actually see that, you know, it's like how um, Bob wasn't revealed to Sarah until she saw a vision of him at the bed when she was hugging Donna after Laura had already died um, in um, episode one. You know, it's like she didn't start having the visions until then. And maybe Bob wasn't revealed to Leland until then, you know, maybe maybe Leland always thought some things were him. Maybe um, maybe memories were being taken from him, just like Sarah's memories are being taken from her right now, even though she's not technically uh, one of those inhabited by Bob. You know, it's like she's inhabited by Bob's lifestyle. So, um, yeah, there, there's a case to be made that this really is um, Leland finally uh, knowing that there's this thing inside him that... Um, isn't necessarily just him. 
Though I'll still say that, you know, maybe this is Bob finally just being in complete control where, um, you know, he's using Leland's uh, memories like a Rolodex of, you know, things to say and do when you're in certain situations, even though you probably end up using them a little bit wrong. So next we do have Leland Palmer singing and dancing at the Great Northern. And this is when Harry and Cooper pull him aside to say that Ben's been arrested and then, you know, him reacting to the news like he's upset and, you know, like uh, trying to assuage Harry and Cooper that he's not going to kill the uh, the suspect again like he did with Jacques. You know, he says the, the law will handle this. And, you know, then he goes around the corner sick with sadness. But, you know, then it's that laughter and that amazing scene from Ray Wise where it's it's like this this laughing, but also kind of crying. Um, and, you know, I said it earlier, the implied tone is, I can't believe these idiots are letting me pull this off. And um, Ray Wise had a thing to say about this in Reflections. He says, I'm looking at the camera, not looking at them. And I make that transition from weepy Leland to maniacally gr- giggling Bob. And that's my favorite moment in all of Twin Peaks. And um, yeah, I mean, that is amazing. Like, I, I tell you what, it took me until Ray Wise was in Reaper um, before I finally made the transition to thinking he's like this lovable, great guy. You know, it's like every time I would see him up until about like, what was that, 2006? Um, I, I would see Ray Wise and my blood would run cold because of stuff like this. Uh, he, he's, he's great. But anyway, we got Cooper coming around the corner at that scene. Um, you know, he hears Leland's noises. He sees his shoulders, sees the buried head. And, um, you know, he doesn't call out Leland on that either. I mean, he he sees what everybody else sees, which is just like this um, possibly breaking down sad father. And um, he says, if you can remember anything about Mr. Horn's behavior the night of Laura's death, can you please let me know? And, um, you know, Leland appeases him here, but then, you know, we get more laughing and then like this mocking expression. And, you know, of course, uh, those words will be used against Cooper with that whole dairy thing that he'll say. But um, right here, like Cooper isn't quite sure what he's feeling about this whole thing. And, um, you know, here he says, everything okay? And uh, Cooper says, I'm not sure. So it's that whole thing that... um, that uh, Jay Chanel said about, you know, it's amazing what people can recognize, like what what kind of insanity you can like totally not recognize, even though it's right in front of you. And it even it's even happening to Cooper right here. So we have that driving scene where Leland's driving like shit. And, uh, you know, he's, he's just weaving all over both sides of the road. And we've got him singing and he's still singing when the when Cooper and Harry put their lights on and he said, "Uh Oh, like, you know, like a, like a child who's like, Oh, I got caught. Oh, (laughs) like he's absolutely not concerned about it, even though he probably should be. Um, and you know, he, he does this whole thing where he puts on the fake concern. He's like, Oh, I must've been thinking about Ben, but you know, obviously isn't, um, you know, then he, then he drops that thing about the alibi where, you know, it's like in that night, Ben said something about a diary or a dairy. And yeah, then Cooper, Cooper talks about the diary and yeah. Um, but then, you know, Harry, Harry gets called away first by Lucy and then Cooper gets called away uh, second by Harry. Um, 
and you know, like Cooper's like totally taken aback by by um, Leland trying to show him his golf clubs. It's like, I guess, I guess you know, if Bob really is in control, that's the kind of thing that you would bring up with um, colleagues. You know, it's like, hey, look at my clubs, or like that's how uh, that's how Leland made small talk. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he almost swings like a like an Animal Crossing net, like right over onto Cooper's head. But, you know, his playmate had to leave. And, you know, Leland smiles as they drive away and then like, well, guess I'll get him next time kind of way. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's like we, we see right there that um, Bob is the one smiling in the rearview mirror. So, I mean, I, I would say that it's a little more cut and dry here that Bob is actually in charge in that whole scene. But the whole showing showing clubs in the first place, it's like, why is that moment of small talk even happening? I mean, we've got uh, Cameron in his, uh, Cameron Crane in his article again um, he, about the clubs. You know, it's like he says, and yet why even do this? That dead girl he's taking a drive with is going to turn up at the end of episode 15 wrapped in plastic while Ben Horn sits in prison. I do not think it makes sense to conceive of this as a mistake any more than the erratic driving that causes him to be pulled over before he makes the offer about the golf clubs. It may be hubris, but a step more compelling to me is the thought that Bob is an agent of chaos, looking for fun. After all, it is Leland's Garmin Bosia that he delivers at the end of Fire Walk With Me. So yeah, maybe maybe Bob really is just a trickster figure, as I'm sure they were kind of framing him at the time anyway. But I mean, it, it's it's just odd to me. I I think if Leland were in charge, he would have used all the words, you know, like uh, like he did with Ben Horn, where he came up with a plan how to launder money. Um, you know, it's like I I think it would have been a little more um, together at that point. But, you know, it's like we've got a guy right now who isn't afraid of getting caught at all, which to me says that his human side is like way under wraps at this point. And, you know, mentioning that they found Gerard at that point, you know, it's like there, there's this whole relationship between Bob and Mike that's worth kind of looking at, too. And, you know, I mean, Mike has some kind of heat seeking sense to find Bob. Um but, you know, in this case, Mike actually exhibits some manners to that deputy that he clubs, you know, and he, he has an awareness of physical world consequences um, in the middle of his great northern escape scene. And, um, you know, even though he's still 100 percent focused on his goal. So, um, you know, it's like that that's the thing that Leland is currently missing, which to me says that Bob is just in control of Leland as Mike is in control of Philip Gerard. And, you know, we've got um, Mike prowling around Ben later on in this episode. And, you know, he knows that Bob is close, but that Bob is not here now. So, like, uh, what is he doing? Does he have the ability to uh, smell that scorched engine oil smell to, like, know where Bob is? Is that what he's tracking? Uh, I don't know, but, um, you know, it's like, we, we've talked about, we, we've, uh, we've talked about Leland and Bob, but we haven't really talked about the relationship between Mike and Gerard. And, you know, it's like, we, we don't see anything here to contradict the info that he said in episode 13 at the great Northern, you know, it's like, he really is basically just an inhabiting spirit. It, it is cut and dry that he's superseding the, uh, the person that he's in. So like, why wouldn't we think of Bob in the same way? 
And, um, you know, I mean, it, it makes sense to look at Leland that, you know, he's got this, um, this partner and more, uh, you know, switched off inside him right now, or like, you know, he's uh, like Leland is the switched off one, just like Philip Gerard is. Um, but then of course, everybody just kind of behaves very differently. You know, it's like Cooper, Cooper thinks Mike could have been, you know, a, a Shaolin priest, uh, like back in, back in a different time, he could have been a seer, or, you know, in, but, you know, because we don't value that stuff in our culture, uh, we just see him as, um, you know, a shoe salesman who lives among the shadows. Um, but, like, it just seems to me that um, every single pairing works a little bit differently. And I think it just depends on the relationship between the human being and the um, the spirit that comes through them, you know, whether there's a partnership or not. Because, I mean, even Bob himself um, has a completely different relationship with Cooper um, or, you know, Cooper's doppelganger, maybe. It's the doppelganger thing, you know? <laughs> it's like we, we could go on all day looking at the different um, kinds of uh, lodgy relationships, but it's almost the same way that... Um, Twin Peaks has a relationship with all of its uh, residents, you know, like Nadine, you know, it's like she uh, she's happy to think she's in high school yet still exist in the real world. And then, you know, we've got. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just. Delusion and inhabiting spirits are all thematically connected to and. Um, yeah, it's. Um, it's tough to know what a real apples to apples situation is here. But, you know, at the time before all this mythology was like really set in stone, I would say that um, Bob was just considered an inhabiting spirit the same way that Mike was and that he worked on the same rules as Mike, which means, you know, he can turn off Leland's memory and he can do this and he can do that. And, um, you know, who knows, maybe even Lynch is on board with that in that same way that, um, the end of fire walk with me like Leland's last scene is in the, uh, the red room as he's floating. And then Bob throws Leland's blood on the floor. Um, in an answer to where's our garment or, you know, where's my Garmin Bosia. So, you know, it's like maybe losing that blood is how, um, is how Leland doesn't remember things that he does yet still he does remember enough things because of how he was interacting with, um, you know, Laura and Teresa in fire walk with me. So I really think that even though on the surface, it looks like, um, it's very cut and dry. I think that, um, even the show, um, in those, those final bookend scenes of episode 16, um, where Leland dies, you know, it's like, um, you know, maybe, maybe it's just what, um, you know, the, the evil that men do, you know, it's like they, they put out all the different factors that Bob actually could be, uh, right there. And they kind of leave it up to us to decide on what to decide on. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it's, it's kind of nice that like they gave 1990 TV viewers for ABC and they gave ABC a way to kind of see it in a simpler way, even though they still leave you the road to explore the show.
All right, so we are officially done looking through episode 15, and um, all we've got left is the sign-off. You've been listening to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, a production of Ruminations Radio Network and TV Obsessive Radio. If you resonate with what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review our show, and we would love to connect with you on Twitter at Blue Rose TF Pod, on Counter Social at Blue Rose Task Force Podcast, and Instagram and Facebook at Blue Rose Task Force. You can find me at JPB underscore Little Green on Twitter and John underscore The underscore Peaky on Instagram. Visit ruminationsradionetwork.com for additional great shows such as 25 Yards Later and Ruminations of Red Rum. And join all the hosts from Ruminations Radio Network, myself included, on our Discord channel, Ruminations Radio Cafe. Find any number of classic 25YL Twin Peaks articles, including my Electricity Nexus columns, and any content on many other TV shows at tvobsessive.com and 25yearslatersite.com. And if you want to be part of our next mailbag episode, send any comments, questions, or feedback to Blue Rose Task Force Podcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next week as we cover episode 16, the 17th overall episode of Twin Peaks. Until then, listeners, I'll see you in my dreams.